Previously on At The Movies with Arch Campbell, Jen Chaney, and Lou Katz. I'm wondering what your favorite Super Bowl halftime performance is with the caveat that there is one correct answer. Uh, <laughs> go ahead. I never watch the halftime. You don't? <laughs> I what? never watch it. Never. Oh my God. Well, then Arch can't argue with the correct You've answer. Never seen a print. <laughs> like, just, like ever? Never. Wow. I just hate them. At the movies with Arch Campbell, Jen Cheney, and Lou Katz begins now. Hello, once again. This is Lou Katz with the honor of welcoming you to the podcast that does its best, hopefully, to inform you on the ever changing world of entertainment. As a matter of fact, I want to note here at the get go, this is our 75th podcast oh. together. Wow. 75. We want to welcome, as we always do, from Vulture.com and WTOP Radio, the one, the only, Jen Chaney. Hello. Happy 75th. And our special guest critic this week is the Mm. president of the Washington Area Film Critics Association, Tim Gordon. Mr. President. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. (laughs) Mr. President. Always. Unimpeachable. No no Uh. kidding. And now the guy you've been waiting to hear all week long, that longtime critic and entertainment reporter, you love him, Arch Campbell. I bet. And it feels like seven and a half to me, not 75. (laughs) So here we are, and it's always good to get together, and I think it's a good way to start by asking what we're recommending this week. So Jen, uh, what's on your agenda this week? Well, I wanna recommend a documentary that debuted last weekend and has generated a lot of conversation since then. Uh, That's Framing Britney, which is part of the New York Times documentary Mm. series. They focused each episode um, on a different story or issue. And this most recent one was about Britney Spears and the conservatorship that she's still under via her father, and just looking back at the way the media treated her when she was going through very difficult times um, back in the early 2000s. And, um, you know, I've never been a huge Britney Spears fan. Like, she just wasn't for me. I was a little uh, older than her her primary demo. Um, but, you know, reexamining the way that she, the media covered her is just crazy. Like, there's a, there's a clip from a Family Feud episode where the category was what has Britney Spears lost recently? And the answers were her hair, her husband, her mind. Like, who allowed that to happen? Um, It's wild. Who's running that? Uh, It's FX, but you can find it on Hulu as well, um, Mm -hmm. and and probably on FX On Demand, too. Okay, and uh, we're always uh, pleased when Tim Gordon drops by, the president of the uh, Washington Area Film Critics, and Tim... uh, what are you recommending this week? Well, there's a couple of things, uh, and both of them are opening in theaters. Um, of course, Judas and the Black Messiah um, is going to be something that I think people are really going to enjoy. But the film that I'm really keying on, <clears throat> excuse me, is, and I think I'm, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this correctly, The Mauritian? I think that's yeah. the title of it. Um, Jen, have you had a chance to see that yet? I haven't yet. Yeah, it's a, I, right. it's a very disturbing film. Um, I watched it and it put me in the foulest mood. A uh, story about a Middle Eastern man who is picked up pre, right around 9-11 and is taken to Guantanamo Bay and held for 14 years without ever being charged. And I just thought it was, 
it was despicable, but it was a, a really good film. Uh, I, I, the the uh, lead actor, I think, is Tamir. I can't I, I can't remember what his first name is, but him along with Jodie Foster, uh, really really strong performance uh, by both of them in that film. But that's a very disturbing film to watch. But I think it's very good. Yeah, Tamir Rahim, and I think Thank it's you. the Mauritanian. Yes. Which, of course, I was confusing okay. with the uh, Mandalorian, but it's the Mauritanian. <laughs> very, very different. And I saw it. I've heard it, heard it mispronounced so many times, so I'm like, mm. <laughs> I saw it and really uh, I liked it much better than I expected. It's an issue movie about yeah. enhanced uh, confessions at Guantanamo, and uh, it really threads the needle. I thought it was quite good and much better than expected. And I'm going to recommend Judas and the Black Messiah this weekend. Absolutely. First for Daniel Kaluuya's uh, performance. Wasn't he the kid in Get Out? He was. Yeah. And also in Widows. Yeah, and it, I mean, he's, his range is amazing. It's so good to see him moving on to other stuff like that. And it's the story of Fred Hampton, the chairman of the Black Panthers, and the mole in his uh, organization who... Um, uh, worked with him and fed all the information to the FBI, played by Lakeith uh, Stanfield. And again, it's an issue. I thought it would be like a sidebar to uh, the trial of the Chicago 7. And it's a totally different film and very powerful and uh, good performances. So Judas and the Black Messiah. So, uh, Tim, we wanted to have you on because the Washington film critics just uh, released their best movies of the year list. And, uh, and I think uh, Wafka has a pretty good reputation. I think you've been awfully good at predicting the Oscars. So, uh, so what do you think this year? Nomadland seems to dominate. And that was uh, us more. Five five awards for No Man Land, No Mad Land. Excuse me, I always mispronounce that name as well. I, I thought that was actually a really strong choice. Uh, uh, I think I got a chance to see it at Middleburg back in October, and it had buzz then. And, and despite the fact that it had been other high profile films that have come out, No Mad Land, along with with Chloe Zhao and Francis McDormand, has held its place throughout the award season. Uh, I think for me, it's going to be very interesting as it relates to this film when we get to the Oscars. Uh, Frances McDormand has won two Oscars. There have only been three, excuse me, five uh, people who have won three Oscars, one who's won four. So it's almost like a Mount Rushmore-esque club. Does Frances McDormand win a third Oscar this year or is she derailed by someone like Viola Davis who has won and will get two? But um, I think for the most part, four, four of the ladies, I'm almost confident that I, I know who is, who's going to be in that field this year, along with Carrie Mulligan and um, mm -hmm. uh, Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman. So that fifth spot is up for grabs. But I thought, for, as you said, Arch, for the most part, that I thought our awards really did a good job this year of picking the films that have been kind of the films that people have been talking about and discussing for the last three to four months. It's interesting to me that Nomadland is the one movie everybody's hearing about, and it hasn't even opened yet. <laughs> it's opened this weekend. <laughs> it's gonna be on Hulu, right? Right. So yep. uh, if you got Hulu, uh, and I thought it was an interesting cross between 
a drama and a documentary. There are a lot of real people in this this uh, lifestyle of people who live on the road in their vans and work from temporary job to temporary job and live kind of a life on the road. I loved it. I thought it was really an interesting window into a, like you said, a type of lifestyle that I didn't know anything about. I thought, you know, the real people that they talked to actually gave really genuine, authentic performances. And I just thought cinematography wise, it was beautiful. I thought Chloe Zhao did an extraordinary job of directing it. So that I think that's still my favorite going into all this. So that takes care of Nomadland. And uh, Chadwick Boseman is, it is no surprise, won uh, Best Actor from the Washington Film Critics for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I would, I would say um, that uh, award is pretty much nailed down, wouldn't you? I would. Um, I think that um, he he gave he gives his best performance the best performance of his career in his final role and um, whether or not this tragedy would have happened to, well not tragedy but this unfortunate passing would have happened to, or not I still think he would have been a strong strong contender this year uh, for the Academy Awards I just thought it was a magnificent performance um, but it reminded me a lot. Of, of, a, of another stage play, Dreamgirls, where, you know, no matter who you cast in, all, cast in all the other roles, whoever plays the Effie character is going, the, the light is going to shine on them. And the Levy character in uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is that type of a role. So whoever plays that role and if they play it well, you're going to get a lot of attention for it. Yeah, but, you know, I think his illness actually contributed to the performance because the uh, character is sick about what's happening to him and his world. And uh, I, I thought it kind of added a, and it could be because going in, we all know that uh, he died. Right. Any thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've said this before. I mean, I, I agree completely with Tim that I think it was an extraordinary performance that would have probably gotten attention no matter what. But certainly, you know, his whole big monologue talking to to God and, that frustration that he's expressing, there's other layers that get added to it. And you think about what kind of catharsis he may have been personally having while he was actually in right. the role of, of, of Levy. And um, that does add something extra powerful to it. The Washington film critics picked Leslie Odom Jr. as best oh, yeah. supporting actor for One Night in Miami. I have a feeling that uh, is one of your favorite films, Tim. Well, it was my number one film of the year, and I think Leslie Odom is going to actually not just get nominated for an Academy Award, but I think he's going to win uh, playing Sam Cooke. And I just literally re-watched this film again yesterday, and that final scene where he's singing, uh, a change is going to come. I just thought he was magnificent in the film. I mean, you know, a lot of people knew him from Hamilton and have seen him in small roles on stage. But Leslie Odom is coming to his own. And I think that this is his coming out party 
an amazing performance and a wonderful ensemble. Regina King, of course, in her directorial debut, knocked it out the park. Uh, One Night in Miami, as well, as well as Leslie Odom, I think, are going to be formidable this year at the Academy Awards. One Night in Miami's on Amazon, right? On, on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It's available to everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else about the, uh, well, uh, the uh, the grandmother character in Minari, which is opening this week and a lot of people are hearing about. It won your Best Supporting Actress. Yun Jung Yoon. Yes. Uh, Minari is another one. I uh, saw that back at Middleburg. Middleburg, you know, we talk about WAFCA. Uh, Middleburg has played a key role in our awards. I know, Jen, you both Arch and Jen, you guys have been out there over the years. Um, yeah. it, it is a really good precursor, and I think it gives us a sneak peek, if you don't go to Toronto, of some of the films that will be major contenders. And uh, Minari was another film that I saw at Middleburg uh, and was like, okay, pretty good film. I like it a lot. Really nice film. Um, wonderful story. Stephen Yoon uh, didn't win. Uh, our, uh, he didn't win an award from us for it, but he was nominated for it. And I suspect that he probably will be nominated again uh, in, the, in the probably over the next month. But really good film. Uh, I want to mention Boys State won Best Documentary. And thanks to Jen Cheney, I watched that, and that is quite a documentary yes. for our time. There were a lot of good contenders in that category. It was a tough, a tough uh, choice to make, I thought. So, uh, Jen, uh, let's get into what's new on TV this week. There's something I'm especially interested in, but uh, what's new in your world? I suspect I know what it is, considering <laughs> there's only two things on the list. <laughs> it's a lighter TV week than usual, but... Um, there's a, a new CBS series called Clarice, which, as you might imagine, is about Clarice Starling, um, based on the Silence of the Lambs. And uh, Clarice. Hello, Clarice. Wow, what, what an impression of Anthony Hopkins. You nailed it. <laughs> um, and also based on the Thomas Harris novels. Uh, and, and the premise is it takes place about a year after the events of Silence of the Lambs. Clarice is trying to, you know, continue with her FBI career, um, but she's having PTSD from her experience investigating Buffalo Bill. She's gained some notoriety that she's a little bit uncomfortable with. And of course, because that's what always happens in shows like this, she gets dragged into a uh, another serial killer investigation by the attorney general, who happens to be the mother of Catherine, the woman who was being held captive in Buffalo Bill's mm. horrible basement. So that's the setup. I mean, I just, I felt like it was, it's a CBS procedural dressed up in Silence of the Lambs um, accessories. Like it, it definitely refers back to things from that movie and it makes some attempts to be a little artier than a typical CBS show, but ultimately it comes down to like solving the case. And I, I think the Clarice character is a really fascinating character. So I think she's worthy of her own series or movie or whatever it might be. I just am not quite sure. I only watched the first three because that's all we got. I'm not quite sure if this really does the trick. And if you're wondering if Hannibal Lecter is going to be in it, the answer is no, because there's this whole complicated rights issue situation Mm. where they cannot mention Hannibal Lecter at all in this series because they don't have the rights to that character. He who must not be named. Yeah, that's right. Wow. You know, you guessed right. Uh, the the uh, Clarice uh, got my attention because I always felt like the sequels to Silence of the Lambs were off base because the character that made uh, Silence of the Lambs so compelling 
was Clarice. And yet they were going to Hannibal Lecter. And, uh, you know, I think when we watched Silence of the Lambs, we were so worried about Clarice. That's what gave that movie such uh, depth. And then just to have this, this uh, monster, uh, I don't think it ever worked. I think they always went the wrong way. The movie should have followed up on Clarice. I mean, I think they're both really compelling characters. And and the fact is that Thomas Harris has written more about Hannibal than he has about Clarice. So there's more sort of source material to work with. Um, there was also another NBC series called Hannibal that was actually quite good. And that's on, I think it's on Netflix now, if you ever want to catch up with it. It only mm-hmm. lasted three seasons. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's an argument to be made that they're both compelling for different reasons. But you're right that she has not been given as much um, space in the in the cultural sphere as as Hannibal has. So we mentioned the new movies coming out this week, and uh, let's just go back over again and uh, start with Minari. What do we think? I thought it was wonderful. Um, yeah. You know, for people who don't know, it's the story of. Uh, a Korean family that is decides to start a farm uh, in the middle of nowhere, and uh, it, it doesn't go as easily as they would have hoped. And their son, who is just that young actor, is just tremendous and so charming. Um, I think we gave him best youth performance, didn't we, Tim? For we Waka? did. We yeah. did. The parents are concerned that he has um, a heart condition, and so they're constantly telling him not to run. And so a lot of it is about the relationship and the and the sort of care around him, and then the concern that this whole farm concept is not going to work out very well. It's a lot of it is in Korean and subtitled. So that's why Golden Globes, for some weird reason, put it on, what, what do they call it? Like foreign, foreign. language film? Well, they Even call it international yeah. now. Yeah. Well, Oscars calls it international. I think Globe still calls it foreign language, which is why okay. they were able to argue. But this is an American movie through and through in every possible way. And one thing that's really cool, actually, is that obviously this is opening in some theaters, but in terms of watching it on demand, A24 is selling tickets directly on their website. So you can go and, you know, you click buy tickets, it's tickets in quotes, and you get access to um, the movie for a 24-hour period and you can watch it whenever you want. So that's kind of a cool way to go directly through the studio. In a smart way as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Set in the 80s in Arkansas, and one of the things that impressed me was uh, it didn't turn the Arkansas residents into cartoon figures. You didn't get the normal bumbling uh, rednecks uh, that you might expect. He makes some connections, and and they uh, help him as they can, and uh, I thought that was uh, interesting. Yeah. Although I, I do think they still convey that some of the, you know, the largely white population around there does not know how to communicate with these people and they're not, not all of them are very nice to them. So that certainly comes through, but you're right. It was, it was more nuanced than you would usually see in a movie like this. Mm-hmm. Tim, any thoughts on Minari? I mean, you guys have said it all. I mean, as we talked about uh, earlier, when I saw this film, I thought it was a really uh, wonderful uh, story that had some rocky moments in it. Um, you know, I, I remember the disappointment uh, that they felt when, you know, all their life's work went up in smoke. And I was like, wow. I mean, it really, it really was a good story of showing this culture, trying to, you know, assimilating in uh, this crazy idea in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a part of what I call the magic of movies sometimes, you know, you, you're transplanted into these stories and the stories just kind of wash over you and you go, okay, that's a good experience. I like that one. No, that one's not for me, but Minari 
definitely was a story that I, I think I enjoyed and a lot of other people will as well when it opens this weekend. Mm -hmm. And I think an Oscar contender. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. definitely. Uh, and we discussed Judas and the Black Messiah, which I was was very su pleasantly surprised uh, watching. It's a compelling drama and really a gut punch. Well, it's very interesting because when I saw the initial trailer, um, I was not sold at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I had read several books about other members of the Black Panther Party and understood the, the, the philosophy very well. And when I saw the movie, I, I, I loved how Shaka King recreated like 1960s, early 1970s Chicago and the feeling and the mood in the community, watching uh, Kahlua, who clearly put on weight to play this role, to, cl to yeah. closely resemble what Hampton looked like, or at least his physical frame. Um, I thought the, the performances from Lakeith Stanfield, uh, Dominic Fishback as uh, Fred Hampton's love interest, Deborah Johnson. I thought she was strong. I, I just thought, you know, it was interesting because when I first watched it, I kept hearing the voice of the FBI director and I said, that sounds like Martin Sheen, but it had, <laughs> it had him under such makeup. I was like, and I kept looking at him, I said, oh, that is Martin Sheen. Wow. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Judas and the Black Messiah um, is a revelation. And I think as it builds into his third act, it becomes, as Art said, much more powerful, much more impactful. Uh, Kahlua is is putting together quite a string of performances. I, I yeah. saw him in Widows, and he was menacing. Mm -hmm. In this film, I mean, he's complete. He completely transforms into these characters, which I find that you know that's the mark of a wonderful actor, and he is there. But um, don't forget Lakeith Stanfield, who I think yeah. uh, closely resembles William O'Neill. Uh, you know, he deals with the complexities of that character and the betrayal. Uh, he's respecting him as he's setting him up. And it's just, it, it was very, very well done. Nuanced, but very well done. A lot yeah. of us didn't know that story. And so it was really uh, revelatory to me. No disrespect to Leslie Odom Jr., who I think is great as well. But Daniel Kaluuya is my top pick for uh -huh. supporting uh -huh. actor. I just thought he... He just had such amazing presence. And uh, like you said, Tim, I think he's just really established himself as a, a formidable actor. And we brought up the Mauritanian. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Man, I, I, he, he is, okay, I'm not gonna say anything. I'm gonna let you have it because I've heard it pronounced like six different ways. Nobody oh, really? seems to know. Yeah, nobody seems to know how to pronounce the title of this film. Well, I think the problem is the Mandalorian. <laughs> 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 Jen, did you uh, take a look at that? I, I haven't seen it yet, unfortunately. I would be interested in your thoughts. Again, an issue movie that seems to uh, rise above just the issue and to tell a story you might think you know in a, a shocking way. And uh, Jodie Foster put her name on that, I think, to help uh, promote it. Jen, you wanted to mention that John Oliver is coming back this weekend, and I want to hear some more about that because I am a fan. Yeah, so last week tonight with John Oliver, which is on Sunday nights on HBO, has been on hiatus since, uh, I want to say, around Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, nothing's happened in politics since then, so I feel like John Oliver's <laughs> not going to have a lot of material to work with. Um, no, I'm actually curious to see what he what he even does, how he even begins. I'm assuming he's going to focus on the Capitol uh, yeah. and, the, and the impeachment trial, but I always appreciate what he does. And, and also because 
even though he obviously talks about like whatever's currently the big political story, he also will dig into some topics that nobody else is touching. And I mean, even regular news organizations sometimes aren't touching. So uh, I, I'm glad I'm glad to have him back. Uh, still uh, in a studio by himself. I assume he's still going to be in that void. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I do kind of miss the wild audience response, but I think he yeah. rises above it. I think he does pretty good at that. Yeah. So uh, any uh, any extra words we should uh, throw out here before we go? We have a whole other segment. Yes, we do. We do. <laughs> Just before we take a break here. Oh, yeah, let's take a break. That's a good idea. Okay, well, Lou, uh, take it away. Well, Jen, I know you have two dogs, and I know a lot of our uh, podcast listeners probably have animals of some kind. We have a very special deal just in time for Valentine's Day weekend of grooming your pet for free. (laughs) Who let the dogs out? Of course, Hound Radio lets the dogs out. And we know how much you love to smooch with your pooch. So for Valentine's Day, we're going to freshen up Fido with a free bath and teeth brushing from the pet spa at Barclays Square and Falls Church. Their mobile grooming salon will come out to your place and pamper your pet like never before. Here's how it works. Take a picture of you smooching with your pooch. Email it in and we'll pick a winner. Besides their mobile van, the Pet Spa at Barclays Square offers in-store spa services by top groomers in the DMV. Plus, a VIP walking dog program, too. I love to dig like a dog in my paws are covered in dirt. You don't need to dig into dirt for more details. Just go to HoundRadio.com. Smooch with your pooch. Just another way Hound Radio adds to your drool-filled day. Well, here we are, and it strikes me that it seems almost every week now we have to take a moment and remember yet another icon who has left us. And uh, since we uh, recorded last week, Christopher Plummer passed away at age 91. And there's a lot to say about Christopher Plummer. So who wants to go first? Christopher Plummer. My God, man. I've been watching this guy my entire life, his movies. It was interesting because I saw a lot of the tributes and I completely forgot that he, he Spike Lee and him had a combination in a couple of films, including Malcolm X. Um, and I completely forgot about Christopher Plummer and that really? uh, as, the, as the priest that Malcolm X uh, goes back and forth with in prison. And it's a very key, some key moments of dialogue wow. between Washington and Plummer. Um, and I'm trying to remember the second film that he was in because uh, Spike put up a, a tribute. And I said, I completely forgot that, that was Plummer in both those films. But huh. most notably in Malcolm X, he was really, really strong. And I'm just saying that because people talk about all the other work and rightfully so that uh, Christopher Plummer has done. I loved him in Beginners. I thought that was great. He won the Oscar mm-hmm. for that, finally. Um, but an extraordinary actor. And, and it almost bothers me sometimes that we take a lot of these actors for granted because we watch their work and they, you know, they, they age on us. And then suddenly they're not there and you go, oh, yeah, he was. Oh, yeah, that was Plummer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
So I feel bad a lot of times when that happens. And I felt like that about Christopher Plummer, that we should have appreciated his work a lot more than we did. I loved him in The Insider as Mike Wallace. And he, as Mike Wallace, during this investigation of the way 60 Minutes uh, investigated the tobacco industry, I think it was, mm -hmm. as Mike Wallace, he says, I will not leave CBS to toil in the in the in what in the indignity of national public radio <laughs> do me a favor will you spare me for god's sake get in the real world what do you think i'm going to resign in protest to force it on the air the answer is no i don't plan to spend the end of my days wandering in the wilderness of national public radio i uh had an encounter with him I went out to Wolf Trap to interview him, I think, and uh, we were standing uh, at the back of the theater, and there was an orchestra playing or something. We had to wait for a break, so we stood there for like 10 minutes, and uh, it was one of the most delightful 10 minutes I ever spent, mm. and uh, the guy could not have been nicer. I also want to mention that I was lucky enough to see Othello in 1982 when he played Iago to James Earl Jones' uh, Othello. Wow. And it was the greatest performance I ever saw. Wow, I can I can believe that. That must have been amazing. Wow. James Earl Jones and Christopher Plummer? Yeah. Wow. And, and, you know, you would think, oh, well, James Earl Jones. And uh, he uh, dominated that performance, uh, Christopher Plummer. So uh, I thought he was... Uh, uh, a very nice man and uh, a deeply talented uh, performer. We saw him in Knives Out. Mm -hmm. Oh, we did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing about several of these people we've been talking about, uh, him, Cicely Tyson, Cloris Leachman, that, that, you know, they were mm -hmm. up there in age, but they were working right up until the end. I mean, he, I think Christopher Plummer still has a couple of projects that haven't released yet that he was working mm -hmm. on. I, you know, we'd be very, very remiss if we did not mention The Sound of Music, which we've managed to not talk about because he didn't, you know, he didn't love that movie yeah. and he was quite vocal yeah. about it for many years. And then after a certain time, he kind of started to come around on it and understand why people revered it so much. But the funny thing that I learned this week is how many people developed crushes on Christopher Plummer because of the sound of music. Like <laughs> as a kid, that was not where my head was at with that movie, but apparently it was for a lot of other people. <laughs> right. Wow. Uh, the sound of music, I think still holds uh, several uh, titles as most watched and most played. And that was the thing that brought him to everybody's attention. I can't possibly knock it because so many people enjoyed it. And it would be cruel to say that. It was made beautifully. I think we worked so hard to make it not saccharine and properly sentimental. It's one of those iconic movies that we practically know every scene. Yeah. I guess we're at the point where uh, Jen starts quizzing us. No, our... because I added more stuff to the uh, agenda. Oh, really? Because I, A, I thought we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the fact that uh, Mary Wilson from The Supremes died uh, yesterday. An incredibly important band, especially for, or trio, I guess I should call them, for uh, female representation and just, you know, huge, obviously, Motown sensation and uh, very sad to see that, that she passed away. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts about or stories about her, but. I do. Um, I actually had an encounter with Mary Wilson uh, years ago when I worked in radio. They sent me up 
to a promotional junket uh, aboard a ship in New York and, uh, you know, met her, talked to her, told her how much her music meant to that generation. Uh, she was a really, really nice woman. So I thought about that all day yesterday and I listened to the music, but I think for me, and, I, and I'm not gonna delve too deep into it, I think that the whole situation that you saw in Dreamgirls play out as a movie is the backdrop of why a lot of people feel so strongly about that group, Flo Ballard, Mary Wilson, Diana Ross, and um, yeah, so I'm not I'm not gonna say anything ill on the show, but it just brought up some really bad feelings for me yesterday, uh, and understanding how that split happened and how Flo Ballard I thought was taken advantage of. But yes, Mary Wilson was immensely talented. Uh, she was a key cornerstone in, in the biggest pop female group in Motown history and uh, and one of the most influential group girl groups in the history of the business, you know, always there, always singing back up, always uh, classy, looking beautiful. Yeah, so I was very bothered by that yesterday, as you can tell. Yeah. And she's another one, Jen, who was working right until the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of gives you a little bit of hope that you can all of us people keep doing it for a while. Not you, you. I mean, you. Not you are. All of us. Oh, I see. <laughs> I can use all the hope I can get. Lou, did you ever meet Mary Wilson? I've always loved the Supremes music. As a matter of fact, yesterday on Hound Radio, we did a whole segment on her. In fact, I played the audio from uh, a YouTube post that she had just put on literally, I think, four days ago, talking about the 60th anniversary of the Supremes and how uh, (laughs) her record label was going to release some unreleased material. So tragic, (laughs) tragic. I also thought we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the fact that the new nominees for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for this year were announced today. And um, as always, they are controversial. Although actually I thought this was a pretty solid list this year. Not a solid list. I had one name that made me, I did not like Jay-Z being mentioned as a Hall of Famer. Why? Again, uh, I think there are other, I mean, if if LL Cool J is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, how is Jay-Z? Wait, is he not? I can't remember. He's not. (laughs) Okay. So, I mean, every year they, they, you know, so I didn't like that. I mean, I didn't really have issues with the rest of the list because once I saw that name, it kind of froze me. So the list is uh, Jay-Z, which Tim already mentioned, Carol King, Mm -hmm. Tina Turner, who apparently she was in there with um, Ike, Ike. but not by herself, which to me is kind of crazy. Mary J. Blige, Kate Bush, Devo, the Foo Fighters, the Go-Go's, thank God, how long did it take you guys to get that (laughs) happening? Iron Maiden, Shaka Khan, Fela Kuti. Oh, Cool J is also a nominee. So there you go. Oh, is he? Okay, good. Yeah. Um, New York Dolls, Rage Against the Machine, Todd Rundgren, and Dionne Warwick, Queen of Twitter. So um, (laughs) it's a pretty good list. I mean, I'm still, every year I'm like, where's Duran Duran? I don't see him. What are y'all doing? But I was very happy to see the Go-Go's on the list because most successful female rock band of all time, and they're not in there yet. It's ludicrous. I didn't know that until now. And you would have thought Dion, Dion Warwick would have, you would yeah. have thought she would have predicted this. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Art. Wow. Good psychic network joke. That was a deep cut. <laughs> so can we do flashbacks? We can. Or what else have you got? So as you may be aware, um, Valentine's Day is just a few days away. Oh, yes. So I was curious, what romantic comedy do you think you've watched the most times over and over again? Oh, well, that's easy. When Harry met Sally. 
Mm. Lou, how about you? Well, I want to go with an with an answer you guys would not expect. Notting Hill. Oh. Oh. That's one of my all-time favorite movies. Well, what about you, Jen? Well, I have two that are a tie. One of them is When Harry Met Sally. And in fact, I was recently uh, having a conversation on Twitter with Alan Sepinwall, who's a, a TV critic at Rolling Stone. And he had not seen it since he saw it in the theater. I'm like, huh. I didn't think that you were allowed to only watch that movie once. Like, it's legally prohibited. You have to see it a hundred times over and over again. But then my other one is Moonstruck, which has seen a, a oh. this year. During quarantine, a lot of people have been going yeah. back and watching Moonstruck for whatever reason, and I just never, ever, ever get sick of that movie. It is completely timeless. It, yeah. it just continues on and on. Moonstruck is great. I want to uh, add that uh, Tim Gordon refuses to answer. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he's, him under the he's, bus. he's refused to answer. <laughs> he had some technical difficulties, and he had to, he had to leave. But he's not refusing anything. <laughs> Yeah, that's what you say. Right. I say he refused. <laughs> hey, Jen, it's always so good uh, talking to you. And uh, we love when Tim Gordon comes on and we miss him when he's gone. And Lou, uh, thanks so much for today. And how shall, how shall we end this? I think I have a guess. What What's your guess, Arch? Uh, might have something to do with Mary Wilson? No, it actually oh. doesn't. Ooh. One of my additional favorite all-time movies, probably at the top of the list, is The Sound of Music. So I thought we'd wrap things up with Christopher Plummer singing Edelweiss from the soundtrack. He hated that song. <laughs> have yourselves a great week and a happy Valentine's Day. We'll catch you next week. This is the CATS Podcasting System.